Welcome to the third episode of Forwards, Backwards, and Upside Down. He knows old stuff. She knows new stuff. Okay, Nathan, so your What's Happening Today is pretty old. It's over 100 years old. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, well, despite being so old, you know, it's still um, very important today because I, like many other Americans and, and other fans of collegiate sports around the world, have been glued to their TVs watching the ever-exciting NCAA basketball tournament and as it turns out on march 31st 1906 the intercollegiate athletics association which would later evolve to be the ncaa established its rules um, for college sports in the united states which interesting enough are rules that many people myself included absolutely detest how so well, of course, right, you have the consistent problem with this idea of, of athletes, you know, exchanging their athletic services for an education. Um, but as, you know, we've seen the the rise of the one-and-dones in basketball and the rise of, you know, two- or three-year players in the NFL, or going from, you know, college football to the NFL, we see really that that is entirely and completely a scam. Um, that, you know, many of these athletes are really not being given the quality education that they are sacrificing their bodies um, to earn. Is it especially tough as sport becomes increasingly violent, right? You know the number of injured players in a in a football game. You know the the devastating impact that can have on your body can be really um, really dramatically damaging to a lot of people for their long term health. And then the other thing you have right is this idea that you know the the college scholarships really should be given to the kids who are going to be there four years, right? Whereas you know the kid who's the one and done, you know he doesn't need a scholarship. He's not getting the education, and so. You have, you know, I actually have a really good friend of mine who I, I love watching NBA with, and he refuses to watch college sports because of the way they treat their athletes. Yeah, I think growing up in Europe, the idea that in the United States, universities were so interlocked with sports was a really foreign concept, and how in order to play at a high level, you'd have to kind of go to university and then get to the pros, um, and how that that system was very different than sort of club sports in Europe where there's a division between, um, I don't know if that will affect it. Um, sorry for all the buzzing, life uh, as it happens. So I, I'm, I'm very curious that this has been going on for so long. Hearing that it's from kind of 1906 and so long ago, to me it feels so much more modern than that. Um, but that, that seems like a thing that's been going on a long time. On the flip side, however, one of the things that's really different that the U.S. has that a lot of other countries struggle with is because of Title IX, the U.S. women's sports is so much more advanced than many other countries in the world. The Women's World Cup is happening this summer, and of course the U.S. women always dominate because money actually is going towards women's sports and producing really great female talent. So it, there are some pluses and balances to, to this NCAA system. Yeah, I think the Title IX debate is an interesting um, thing and perhaps a debate for another time because mm -hmm. I think there are unfortunately some programs that, you know, because you have to mirror it, right, there are some athletes who get cut because of Title IX and things like that. So that can be, but I think overall you're right, I agree, that has, has definitely had a, a tremendously positive impact on the equality in sports. I think what I find especially frustrating about the collegiate sports um, system is, is twofold. One, you see these consistent, you know, problems with people with bribery 
um, and, and things that are not allowed to be happening, um, and you know, these constant scandals and things revolving around that. I mean, you know, the FBI, right, ran these extensive sting operations. You know, they, they took down, I think, 40 different programs, you know, long time bat names in basketball, you know, went down. Um, and rather than, right, having all this sort of shady thing going on behind the scenes, right, they should really just just pay the players, right? You know, I think the thing that really drives me nuts is that the some of the video game licensing for these players' names and likenesses, they don't see a penny of that, yeah. right? They, their universities are selling jerseys with these kids' names on them. They don't get any of that, right? I mean, I think, you know, you can legally work in the United States and most states when you're 16 years old, right? Pay the players. Yeah, I can definitely see how I've, I've heard, don't they sometimes, because they can't pay them, they'll get cars or apartments. Yeah, but you're not supposed of... to do any of that. No. <laughs> you know? Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought that was like kind of no, a loophole system. No, okay, no, you're that's not even, supposed to do that. Even worse. Um, and yeah, again, the whole thing is sort of fascinating, particularly because, I mean, how much money is going into March Madness now? And, and to think that the, the players are earning an education through these scholarships, but really that's, that's where that draws the line. And then on the flip side, right, you have in, in multiple American states, the highest paid public employee is a sports coach. Like I think in Alabama, the highest paid public employee in Alabama is Nick Saban. He's making like five or six million dollars a year. And he, you know, he does live in some nonsense rent-free house that the university is giving him all this stuff. Right? It's crazy. So really at the end of the day, pay the players. But over 100 years has this been, been enforced. Uh, our other, what's happening today, so this week, NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, turned 70, um, kind of the bedrock for the for the Western countries post-World War II, um, sort of uh, this idea of the NATO versus the Warsaw Pact, and as the Berlin Wall fell and the end of the Soviet Union, Warsaw Pact ceased to exist, but NATO is growing strong. Uh, it's gone from 12 countries to 29 as of uh, last summer. And uh, it's still important in the news. It's come up very recently in, uh, since, since Trump's election and still playing an important part in foreign policy, Nathan. Do you have an Yeah, example? NATO, uh, NATO is, is absolutely very interesting, right? I think the, the growing pressure, right? I think, you know, you had the, the French... I forget, I forget exactly who it was, right? But it's, Donald had been pushing NATO allies to buy f-35s um and their response was like hey you know this is a treaty not like you know a business or a deal right you don't want you don't we're not we're not obligated to buy your fifth generation stealth fighters um yeah i think it's interesting right i mean we still see right a, this growing antagonistic relationship between um between nato the west and and russia right so recently russian troops have been in venezuela which, you know, if you look back at classic American foreign policy is a violation of what's called the Monroe Doctrine, which is sort of the quintessential piece of American foreign policy of the 1800s, which is Europe, stay the hell out of the Western Hemisphere. Um, and after Donald asked Putin to have his troops leave, Putin said, nah, they'll be there as long as they need to be there. Um, which is pretty intense. Right? I mean, the last yeah. time we had, you know major Russian slash Soviet interference was a little thing called the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? Which was, you know, a thing. Yeah, I mean, some argue some of the closest the, the, the world has ever been to nuclear <laughs> war. Um, 
and I think it's it's one thing people forget is the, the kind of the bedrock of uh, the NATO treaty is Article Five. Um, if one country calls for its defense, the other countries will will come. The language is much neither than I just said it. And the only country to ever invoke Article Five is the United States um, after 9/11 um, in the invasion of Afghanistan. And I think this is this is forgotten that uh, you know in the entire history these 70 years only a single invocation of one of the most important bedrocks. There's a lot of fears that the Baltic countries could pull it um, if they really started to fear sort of a Russian invasion. And you know when the U.S. is sort of at at ends with Russia and Venezuela, I think it would be a big stretch to pull Article 5 in this case because uh, self-defense doesn't really apply here, but it's sort of starting to ask questions um, related to where where is everyone kind of in agreement, something that when there were 12 countries, it was really clear where the lines were drawn, who was enemy and who was foe. That's becoming less and less clear. The NATO organization is, there's a lot of battles about funding, and um, it will be interesting for me to see uh, in this Venezuela case and other cases related to Russian assertion in Eastern Europe as NATO expands, so Northern Macedonia now that it's finally decided what its name is, can finally call uh, to ascend to NATO if it so chooses. That would be a 30th member. It's continuing to grow. Other countries in Eastern Europe are looking to join. Uh, and as it grows, can it figure out sort of uh, where it stands in agreement with one another when um, there's so, Article 5 is so intense at the end of the day, calling everyone to, to come to their aid? Yeah, and let's not forget that, you know, Ukraine was looking at perhaps NATO membership um, before some of the uh, events going down in the Crimea, and you know, also looking at EU membership, right? And, you know, that was one of the reasons why Putin probably pulled the trigger on their expansion of his policies in Ukraine, right? Was looking at keeping keeping Ukraine out of closer ties to the West. Same with Georgia mm -hmm. in uh, 2008, yeah. um, sort of this. But it's, it's a very important alliance, um, that it's it's fun to see it turn 70 that you know something that's been around since the post-world war ii era is still going strong uh, but it's it's another multilateral institution that the world is currently figuring out kind of in the rise of popularism speaking of popularism um next segment always is you know what people have been asking us about right what our friends and family uh, have been chatting with us about and of course um, still in the news, still on everyone's mind, is the great undecided Brexit. And what on earth is going on in the United Kingdom? Um, it's been pretty remarkable watching Parliament vote no on everything. It's, it's really, uh, in some ways, sort of worrisome, right, for about, you know, what do you do in democratic and parliamentary systems when no one can figure out what to do when you have this looming deadline, right? You know, I think the, the no-deal Brexit, nobody wants, and yet every day it seems like it's becoming perhaps more and more likely. Well, I think so. My father sent me a pretty interesting, it was written by an MP, kind of 
talking about the experience of sitting in British Parliament right now. And in it, basically saying the decision making is happening elsewhere, that there's very little that is actually done by a single member of parliament at this stage. And yet the votes keep happening on things that everyone knows what's going to happen when they're voting on. They're voting it to kind of check the boxes as they push things through, trying. But the actual ability to come up with a solution is in other people's hands and in almost the helplessness of watching the tumbling out is it's a it's a pretty remarkable op-ed um, and really a thought I think for everyone sitting here watching knowing the economic consequences not only to Britain but Britain's major um, partners Ireland uh, the Netherlands is one of the big partners the rest of the EU sort of what happens next um, I saw that um, the royal family is in Cuba right now because apparently they have strong relations and when Brexit happens, I guess, reach out to it. And just the thought of, I'm, I'm sure there are other reasons for them, for the royal family to be in Cuba, but that that was, was on the table. It's, it's sort of having a sense of uh, everything tumbling down. Um, and then, you know, there's the Theresa May question, which, which for me, I called from day one, this is a glass cliff situation and it sure does feel like it yeah i think the thing that seems most remarkable to me right is this as i'm looking at the financial times reporting that Theresa may is weighing a fourth vote on the brexit deal and it really reminds me of the one of the traditional definitions of insanity right which is repeating the same action over and over and expecting a different outcome right and i think in many ways onlookers to the Brexit um, negotiations, it is insanity, right? It is, to me, it is completely and totally insane the number of things that nobody thought of when they had the referendum two years ago. And it seems to me, you know, as we see this, um, you know, this petition now reaching oh, more than 6 million signatures to have a second vote, right? You know, I mean, this is a monumental thing that is going to affect the lives of everyone on the British islands and then some. And the idea that, you know, a few percentage points in a popular vote could decide something so monumental. I think for me, the biggest lesson and the biggest takeaway with Brexit has been the complete and total failure of popularism and the, and direct democracy, which pains me and, and, and hurts me because I love and believe in democracy and I am a diehard humanist, but it, it shows once again that the world we live in has become too complex and too economically intertwined for people to understand it and then make educated decisions about it. Which, I mean, when we look back at the Remain campaign, you know, you needed a freaking economics PhD to really understand that damn pamphlet they sent out, right? Whereas the Leave campaign stuck to, you know, quick little bites of, you know, classic rhetoric, which worked. Yeah, and I think it's, uh, the issue of direct democracy, whether it's in in this British referendum or in the California context, um, we've seen time and time again that the the closer you bring issues to the people, the more knowledge that those issues usually take in order to make a sound, rational decision on them. 
Um, and the more easily influenced people are by, you know, um, save this much money on the National um, Health Service and things. Uh, what would you say, Nathan, are kind of the big the big questions people have been asking you about Brexit that we haven't covered so far? Anything that we're missing? I mean, the biggest question I keep asking is, is, is this the death of the United Kingdom, right? Is would, would Scotland, after some sort of Brexit, decide, you know what, maybe this whole active union thing isn't for us anymore? And, you know, will Ireland and Northern Ireland finally decide it's time to put aside their religious grievances and rejoin as one Irish peoples? Um, and that, to me, would be very... You know, interesting. You know, speaking of, you know, NATO seventy years old, the Act of Union that's seventeen oh seven, I think. That, you know, that's some old school, uh, you know, foreign policy agreements and things like that. So yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty remarkable what the cascading impact Brexit has had across the world and and will be across the British Islands. I think you know, people have been asking me, you know. What's going to happen to the pound? You know, what's going to happen um, to you know British relationships with other countries and things like that? And yeah, I think it'd be interesting. You know, is as Britain distances itself from Europe, is it possible that they would then become closer to, let's say, you know, North America? Right. So, you know, could could the you know NAFTA 2.0 all of a sudden get a fourth signatory and you know throw the Brits in? That could be very interesting. You know, and I think. You know, if Britain is going to distance itself from the Europeans, they will need to find a more powerful friend to be in this trading block. You know, especially as the EU has just signed a massive trade deal, right, with Japan, and making Canada. and Canada, yeah, making one of these you know absolutely enormous trade regions. And so, if the British are not careful, they could be left out in the dark. And as much as I love Cuba, <laughs> that I don't think they, you know, Cuba, Britain does not scream economic powerhouse to me so we'll have to see what happens um you know the other thing that uh, has been uh chatted about in my circle especially as a teacher of course has been you know the recently um broken scandal surrounding college admissions in the united states um and you know i i you know being a teacher dealing with parents right you know i, I have um, long thought the helicopter parent was this interesting idea, right? It's sort of the parent that hovers over, that watches the child. Um, and getting ready for this, I um, Michelle told me about this new name for these kind of parents, which I think is pretty spectacular. So the new phrase, which I I also think is just perfectly done, um, the snowplow parent. And so this kind of reading, New York Times, Huffington Post, um, sort of this uh, evolving term, I think The Economist has used it as well, really is if the helicopter parent was the parent always watching the child to make sure if something goes wrong, they can fix it. This is more the parent plowing a way forward such that the child never really has a risk. Um, and so it's the next level of creating a path for a child that, you know, I in this scandal, like, the kids didn't even realize, in some cases, that their parents had been putting in all these different checks to make sure that they got to the college of their dreams, or maybe their parents' dreams. Um, and yeah, no, that's exactly it. It's their parents' dreams. I think so many of these kids, their parents 
have created this path for them that they have no other choice but to follow, right? You can't drive your car on a street that hasn't been plowed. And just like this, right, you have to follow the snowplow, which I think is another layer of this metaphor that I really love. Yeah, I didn't actually think of that sort of element of it because to me, it's, to me, I'm very focused on the lack of risk or ability to fail in their, in their plowing, but you're correct that you can't have every barrel, you can't plow every road. So they're really limited to kind of the dream school and the dream idea and like the dream career potentially. Um, And I think it, it brings up this, you know, I mean, you know, for anyone to tell you that merit alone will get you into American universities is ignorant, right? Having money, having access to things like tutors and sports teams and all that stuff is absolutely going to help you. And so that's sort of been, you know, the worst kept dirty secret of the college admissions process. But now that it's out in the light that, like, no, people can actually bribe their way in, right? And, of course, I mean, there, there are so many way, legal ways to bribe your way in, right? Buy a university, you know, buy a building, you know, give them a million trillion dollars or whatever, right? But you know how you have people paying, you know, someone $50,000 to Photoshop someone's head onto a, you know, onto a, you know, a photo of them playing lacrosse and get the coach to lie about them playing lacrosse, right? I think, like, that to me is almost like so much more disappointing. Like you really want to snowplow your way and you really want to throw a million dollars at your kid and let him go to USC or whatever, you can do it, right? So now that there's like this another layer of like more nefarious bribing and, and corruption going on. Um, pretty disappointing. Yeah. Have you seen in kind of the seven years since you started teaching a real change in parenting that reflects the snowball culture? Or do you still feel like you're in the helicopter for the most part? I think I I have not encountered too many snowplows, and that is, I think, partially because the institution I work at does not lend itself, you know, being a newly founded school, I think, does not lend itself. You know, I don't think a snowplow would send their kid to a school that's only seven years old. Um, But I I certainly have my fair share of helicopters, uh, and, you know, you try to make sure they have a nice place to land, and you chat with them, and then hopefully send them on their way. Um... You know, the alternative, right, being not to bust out the surface air missiles. But I try not to do that (laughs) too often. I like my parents for the most part. But, um, yeah, it's just just wild, right? I mean, like the – and, you know, a fall from grace for so many folks. Um, I think what what pains me the most is there there are a few kids who are going to be the victims of this who in many ways – you know, might not have done very much wrong, right? If their parents were doing things without their knowledge, you know, that that sucks for these kids. And then chances are their lives are probably going to be forever irrevocably damaged because of this. And sure, they already have a yacht and a bajillion billion dollars, so they'll probably be fine. But at the end of the day, I think it's what saddens me the most is that the choice and the opportunity for these children has been taken away from them. And I think that's one of the great things about college is get the hell out of the way of the snowplow. Get away from the helicopter. Be your own person. And I think having parents take that away from their kids so that they can succeed or that they can achieve this dream the parents have for them um, is really a, a disappointing aspect of parent parenthood these days. So yeah. just have to wait and see what the next generation of parents will be like. I'm interested to see what millennials will be like as parents. Oh, um, absolutely. Certainly could be one. Another thing that that's brought up, right, is for many of the boomers, right, there wasn't this frenzy of colleges. There wasn't always the top 100 list. Right? A lot of boomers 
looked in their local area and went to a college that made sense for them, right? Whereas now you have these parents that are saying, you know, you have to go to this school. You have to go to this school. Uh, and that has changed the way college admissions works in many ways, too. Yeah, and I think the it, high school diploma is no longer enough. Everyone sort of needs to go to college if you don't want to sit with stagnant wages and sort of have the opportunities of, of the U.S. economic system. That's also pushing and putting pressure on this college admissions process when you still have a limited number of schools at the end of the day that are of an established caliber. Yeah, but I think that alone is already is nonsense. You know, we need more engineers. Um, I guess that's a four-year degree. But no, we need more electricians, right? We need more mechanics. We need more, you know, skilled construction workers, right? And you don't need to go to school for those kind of things. And you can make plenty of cheddar doing that kind of work. I think in many ways it's part of the stigma against blue-collar labor, um, which I think is a disappointing aspect of this country. Absolutely. All right, time to roll through Reddit. We're going to do Reddit science this week. Always one of my favorite um, subreddits, you know, an opportunity to explore um, science. You know, I think sometimes scientific journals can be pretty hard to chew on. They can be, you know, sometimes they're very, very expensive. And so I've always enjoyed what they call the new Reddit journal of science as an opportunity to kind of see um, science, you know, from a more digested point of view, right? You can always sort it by what kind of science you want to see, but I think we'll just take a general look at it. Um, and Michelle, do you have an article you want to share? Let's see. Uh, that one. I, I have don't... a rather alarming article, oh, right? no. which is a study finding that the, the nice clean smell we get when we see a swimming pool is actually a chemical reaction uh, between pee and chlorine, which is creating a chemical that's been linked to asthma and other respiratory issues. So next time you walk into a pool and go, oh, it sure smells nice, you're inhaling pee. That's the one I saw, and I just didn't want to share it with everybody. <laughs> but of course, wow. uh, this one is kind of great. Um, so Tasmanian devils, um, which I'm sure all of you remember from the cartoon character, Adapt, are adapting to coexist with cancer, according to the Journal of Ecology. Um, the animal's immune systems are modifying to combat devil facial tumor disease, which I guess is a specific cancer related to uh, Tasmanian devils. So it seems like the, the, the tumor disease will phase out in 75% uh, in, in different forecasts over the next 100 years, and 22% predict coexistence. So this seems to be in the fight against cancer, another opportunity. Perhaps whatever is going on in Tasmanian devil we can bring to humans. Uh, what also brings up the other scary thing, right, is that the Tasmanian devil is endangered, I believe, right? And, like, what if, you know, we had completely eradicated this lovely carnivorous mars mammal marsupial maybe marsupial um right we could have been losing out on this opportunity to perhaps um explore powerful cancer fighting developments do you have another one yeah i mean um you know i think as we're um seeing the uh in growing impacts of climate change Right, um, a new study coming out from um, in the health uh, world is that a, a billion people may be exposed to tropical diseases over the next um, 
you know, by the end of the century, right? As global warming is rising, we're going to see the the mosquito band in the world expanding, right? And, you know, one of the greatest killers of humanity, right? The mosquito and all the diseases, um, blood-borne diseases it can transmit across humans mm-hmm. um, could be a real new problem, right? Things like dengue, right? There was already this huge dengue fear, um, and so, you know, it could be uh, a growing, and, you know, and one of the, you know, umpteen number of cascading impacts of um, a warming planet uh, is, you know, the increased range of everyone's least favorite bug, the mosquito. Um, Michelle Moore? I have a, good, I have a great one um, because it, it speaks to something um, that, that I definitely understand. So as I had kind of heard of before, but this definitely confirms it, um, animals do have accents. And it seems that Virginia Tech researchers have deciphered and codified the universal language of the honeybees. So sort of a way to have a basis such that the different accents, so to speak, between various honeybees, um, other institutions will be able to, to decipher um, apparently, hold on, the waggle dances are an important part of this um, communication between honeybees. Of course, honeybees incredibly important for sort of our lives and being on this planet. Um, they are having their own issues with climate change and human interaction. But this, this to me, you know, the whole Esperanza was going to be this universal human language. It seems that Virginia Tech has found the Universal language of the honeybee. Shake that booty. I love it. Um, one last one before we go. I think something I always love about science, right, is sort of, you know, I think I love the scientific method. I love the, the, the proof of things, the retrying of things. But in some ways, right, it's always interesting to watch science approach sort of anecdotal things that we already kind of knew. But in this case, right, we see a study um, coming out in the psychology world, right, that um, take, spending 12 minutes to walk around and offer kindness to others in the world reduces your anxiety, increases your happiness, and increases your feeling of social connections, right? Which um, is absolutely true, right? I was wearing my 49ers hoodie today, walking through DC. I got a high five. I chatted in line um, with the guy next to me in Whole Foods, chatting about what draft picks we should take. And it absolutely was true, right? You know, getting around, walking in the world, chatting with my with my friends, uh, fellow 49ers friends, right? Like, that was awesome. It, it made me feel good. Um, and so... You know, get out in the world, get go for a walk, high five a stranger, you know, yell at the Ian Eagles fan you see, <laughs> you know, get get out there, connect with your fellow human. It, it'll it'll do a world of good. The high five was particularly wonderful. Just like wholesome high five on the on the middle of Fourteenth Street here in DC. Go Niners. Was pretty brilliant. So we've got some interesting numbers in the news, right? Always, uh, always fun to find where uh, we can see sort of interesting numerical happenings in the world of news. Michelle has one to share with us, uh, which is coming to directly from everyone's favorite Wall Street. Okay, so Lyft IPO'd today and ended, or I think it IPO'd sometime this week, um, very recently. It ended its first day of trading at a valuation. It wouldn't have been today because today is Sunday. My bad. Um, it ended its first day of valuation at $22.2 billion. It is, uh, you know, one of the, the big unicorns to go this year. Um, Uber is also going up for IPO. 
Um, but Lyft, interestingly enough, was offering drivers sort of bonuses and exchanges of those monetary bonuses for um, shares in the company if they so wish. And so starting sort of how are these, uh, you know, massive companies with, I guess they're not technically employees, it depends on what jurisdiction you're in, how they're defined as contractors or employees, but with massive amounts of sort of individual stake in these companies and their IPOs, how companies are responding to that, Lyft has decided to offer this. Um, and they closed their first day at $22 billion, which was only up about 8 9% on um, where, they, where their um, stocks were going at the beginning of the day, which for a giant tech is not as large in kind of the unicorn world, but it's certainly... Yeah, I think, think I think I'm seeing they opened at seventy-two uh, dollars a stock, and they they had a high of eighty-six seventy by about noon, and then they ended up back down at um, they closed at seventy-eight twenty-nine. Um, so not bad for Lyft. Well done. Twenty-two billion dollar valuation for the company. Um, I think yeah. I mean Lyft. Lyft to me is an interesting one. You know, I started with Uber. You know, that's sleeker, it's chicer, it was always faster. Um, but the more new, the more I read about Uber, the more I learned about Uber, the more I realized that they were the Walmart of the ride-sharing world and that they were actually horrible to their employees and did messed up stuff, and I didn't really appreciate their business practices. And so it's been a long time. You know, I, every once in a while, if it's a long, long wait for a Lyft, I'll get in an Uber. But otherwise, I have been all about that pink and purple Lyft app. Um, I am all for them. I think they're the better company. And so we'll see how they can continue to compete with Uber um, in the you know in the scooter world and the self-driving world. Um, I think it'll be pretty interesting to see they, that continued battle. I think as ever, you know, competition always good for us consumers. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see how Lyft can compete with the, the giant of the industry, Uber. Uber also has the international market in a way. I I don't know if Lyft is beyond the United States. I would really have to look that one up. Um, Uber certainly has been eating competition in various countries. Um, some countries they decided to stay out of or buy um, rivals but not kind of merge with them. Uh, and so Lyft is an interesting one as um, my understanding predominantly u.s based um yeah it says u.s if you go to the lyft website the only cities it pops up in are, are the only countries are u.s and canada um, yeah. and so it'll be interesting to see yeah can lyft break out into the international market or are they gonna are they gonna let uber which you know kind of interesting right kind of that's what facebook did right i mean facebook's you know share has actually been going down in the in the states but they've continued to increase their market saturation across the world and that was after they IPO'd. Maybe the extra cash will help Lyft sort of work into those markets. We'll have to see. Nathan, what is your number in the news? Yeah, this is something um, It actually goes back to, you know, things I've chatted about with people. Um, you know, the island of Japan has always been a fascinating island to me. And um, I saw a series of films almost maybe 10 years ago now that was sort of about this idea of Tokyo. And it was three films. And one of the films dealt with this idea of the... Hikikomori, which is sort of the modern-day hermit. Um, you know, it, it's people in Japan who are basically imposing self-imposed isolation, you know, social isolation, right? Basically people who have dropped out of society. Um, and for the first time ever in Japan, the Japanese government 
did a survey of people ages 46 to 64 and found that 613,000 hikikomori of that age group exist in Japan. And on top of that, they estimate somewhere maybe another 541,000 hikikomoris from ages 15 to 39, right? It's about two-thirds men, but not entirely men. And, you know, within that group, you see a certain um, subdivisions, right? Some are suffering from internet addiction. Some are suffering, you know, from social anxiety, things like that. But one of the most common trends you see is the the unemployment, right? And the the unacceptability of unemployment in Japan, right? And sort of this, you know, this work culture, this, you know, company culture, and for some people, that just doesn't sort of fit, and they increasingly withdraw from society. And in an age where you can get everything delivered, you know, you can sort of be enabled to be a hikikomori. Um, and so I think it brings up one of the another interesting, you know, problems that Japan is having, right? This sort of hyper-technological society, in many ways, one of the most westernized, you know, civilized, you know, with air quotes, society in the world. And once again, they're they're going through this sort of crisis of, you know, I mean, this is, you know, that's, you know, a, a, hundred, a, a, million, a million people, people, right? Which is, you know, what Japan's, what, 220 million or so? Oh, I forget right. the total population. So, you know, it's not a, it's not a, a massive amount of their population, but it's, it's a lot of people who are locking themselves in their houses and don't want to go out, right? And... The article I was reading mentioned, right, this idea that there's this saying in Japan, right, which is basically, you know, um, uh, you know, a, a nail that is out of place gets hammered down, right? So sort of being someone who doesn't fit into Japanese society, you're going to get hammered down until you fit. And now you have, you know, a million people who are optionally withdrawing themselves from society. Um, kind of scary. Now, I had heard previously about sort of the seniors, uh, Hikomori, there we go. Um, was it surprising the number of youth, sort of this 15 to 39? To me, that's a, a large number of individuals who have decided to do this. I'm sure it's more significant than just living with your parents. Was that a surprise at all, sort of the youth side of it? Yeah, so it's not, so it's not, that's actually important to recognize. It's not people who are living with their parents. Many of the hikikomori are financially dependent upon parents, um, but it's not necessarily people, it's actually it's people who are completely socially isolated. Um, and so, yeah, you, you do see this trend of it being older people, people who, you know, haven't been able to have a second career, haven't, you know, got fired from a job and have just sort of withdrawn. Um, but there is, yeah, there is, you know, this growing, uh, growing youth movement or youth, you know, youth creation of Hikikomori as well. And so um, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how, you know, we, as we see, right, the Ministry of Loneliness um, in England, right, how, you know, I think it was in, in France, right, postmen were required to check in on the elderly, right? So, you know, how, how will these increasingly technologically dependent societies deal with sort of these new 21st century problems. Um, certainly interesting to see, right, the government, you know, for the first time now is really accepting that it is possibly something they should know about, you know, so they've done this survey, they've done this um, study to see what is happening. And I'm curious, right, is is it something that is isolated to Japan? You know, you know are there hikikomori um, 
across the world. You know, certainly, you know, I think there's a little bit of hikikomori in all of us, right? We love to wrap ourselves up in a blanket and watch Netflix for two days, right? <laughs> but the idea of doing that for, you know, two, three, seven years, right, is um, sort of something else. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think the one thing that I kind of am thinking about when you're talking about this is the show My 600-Pound Life, where you have these individuals who not only are recluses in their own home, but for sometimes haven't left their own bed. Um, and as we heard last night, apparently you can get paid, what they say, $21,000 to lay down in your bed in a German study. Um, so I for guess- For 60 days, for, yeah. For 60 days, you can get paid to do the study. And all I could think about were what are the purposes of like, why do they need to know all of this? Maybe hospital stays. But, um, you know, I think some of these issues where, you know, individuals are reclusing in smaller, smaller geographical areas when they're able to use the interwebs to kind of explore everything from this smaller and smaller geographical area, um, that may be the purpose of the study. We didn't really know the purpose of the study. We just knew it was happening. Um, so lots of, lots of things that are, are to, me, to me, scary to kind of see the, like, smaller... As we said, 12 minutes walking every day. Make sure you get out and about with your fellow humans. Kind of coming full circle for us. Uh, and uh, But we'll have to see how, how, how we deal with these technological challenges that we continue to talk about in the podcast throughout our episodes. Yeah, I think it's interesting about this idea of, you know, hikikomori is definitely, right, this first world problem, right? You know, in, in societies where you can't, post-industrial societies that can support a child like this, you know, you could feed an adult child in their home indefinitely, right? Whereas, you know, to what degree is this um, a first world problem, right? A problem that the first world has created and therefore a problem that the first world will have to solve, right? I, I doubt there are many hikikomori um, in countries that have not, you know, reached a post-industrial society. Um, and so, yeah, I'd be, I'm very curious to see if this is something that will, will spread beyond Japan um, or, or if it is you know, located uh, more on that island. Um, certainly curious to see, right? So it says here, yeah, you have to be six months uh, to be Hikikomori, right? So those of you looking into the joining the German study, 60 days won't classify you as Hikikomori. So go ahead, earn that $19,000, <laughs> listen to a few podcasts, hang out in bed. Um, just don't forget to stretch while you're in bed. Uh, you know, get those blood moving. You don't want to develop any problems. Um, and I don't think I would do it, though. $19,000, 60 days in bed, that sounds... That sounds real bad. But, I'm, you know, it's for I'm science, so hopefully someone does it. Apparently you have to speak German, Nathan, oh, so well, right, I'm out not going to happen. Maybe anyways. I could learn while I'm in bed. <laughs> All right, wholesome happening. Well, let's get to something fun and exciting. Yeah, so, um, you know, one of my favorite things uh, I enjoy more than really just anything else um, is international sport. I think it brings together, um, in many ways, some of the greatest... Um, aspects of humanity, right? This this idea that we compete to bring ourselves together, right? You know, the old, one of the few times that there would be peace across the Hellenistic world was during the Olympics, right? And athletes traveling to the Olympics would be fed, they would be housed, people would give them gifts, no one would mess with them, right? There was sort of this idea that there was peace in sport. Um, and so during some of the, um, I think these were for Euro qualifiers, Right. There was a pretty great moment in which during um, a game between Scotland and Kazakhstan, 20 local Scotsmen, after going to watch the game, went to a local Kazakhstani school 
that specializes in children with autism, and they handed over a check totaling 10,000 pounds um, to that school, right? So sort of, you know, the Scots, I don't think, always have the, you know, the greatest um, reputation, you know, the soccer hooligans and that kind of stuff. And so when I saw this sort of positive message being associated with soccer and with, um, you know, with footy, with the international sporting world, I really wanted to celebrate that. Um, and I thought it was a pretty beautiful thing, right? And especially it brings up, you know, recently, right, the some of the racism that has been um, targeted, thrown at the British players, right? Harry Kane came out and made a statement, which is that if his team um, is a target of more racism, he will walk his team off the pitch. And I absolutely support uh, and respect his decision. Um, I would be very curious, though, to see if he actually does it, because um, that could be something else, right? But I think it brings up, right, in many ways, I think, you know, you see sport as the way to really bring humanity together, but also, again, right, we see as in every aspect of our life these days, it is also something that sometimes brings out the worst in us as well. But in this case, kudos to you 20 Scottish fans donating to a great cause. Um, and it seems like they were entertained with music and dances from the students at the school, so at least they got their money's worth. Um, so good for them. Good job. Um, Michelle, anything else? Uh, just that that story warms my heart and it's a great cultural exchange i'm sure hopefully the the song and dance was kazakhstani in a way that they could really share the moment together and i think to me those moments of international players kind of um becoming friends and being together and like learning from one another are really really important um and i think you know, it's little things like the the refugee team that's been happening in the in the Olympics recently, sort of uh, really finding a place in the world um, for for in sports um, for people who may not have a home country anymore. But um, it's these little things that really make a big difference. And and sports is something we kind of all share at the end of the day. Yeah, I think it's really great. And again, the only thing that bums me out more is that this story, you know, didn't get didn't get more. Uh, coverage, right? Because I think it's, you know, I think in this day and age, we see this increasing, you know, focus on the bad. I think that's why Michelle and I thought it was such an important thing to have this wholesome happening in our cast, um, was because we want to celebrate that there is still good in the world, there is still good things happening. Um, and so if 20 Scottish soccer hooligans can decide, you know what, we're going to give over um, 10,000 pounds to this school that, you know, really has nothing to do with them, right? It's thousands of miles from their home. It's kids who aren't their kids. And yet they're going to make this generous gift to it. Um, it's spectacular. So good on you, Tartan Army. Well Yay. done. Let's see if you qualify. I always enjoy watching the Euros. So hopefully this um, act of karmic goodness will perhaps make one soccer ball hit one blade of grass slightly differently and the Scots will find themselves onwards to the Euro Cup. We'll find out. Euro Cup qualifications continue. So um, now we have our funny fact finished, sticking to the continent of Europe. Um, this one is great, um, but also sort of horrible. Um, but again, you know, given the opportunity to laugh or to cry, I'll always take a laugh. So Michelle, take it away. All right. First round of Ukrainian elections were today. The as exit polls are coming out. It seems like the top candidate is, pardon my pronunciation, uh, Vladimir Zelensky. I think that's, yeah, that's enough. close enough. Um, my Ukrainian is zero. Um, he is most famous in the country of Ukraine for playing the president 
on a national television series, and he decided to run for uh, president. He's a comedian. He is not the first comedian to run for president. I believe the president of Guatemala, Morales, I think is his last name, is also a former comedian. Uh, so they could, maybe their summits would be pretty hardy if he goes on to the, he will probably go on to the second round, and if he wins that round and becomes the president of Ukraine. So that's our funny fact finish. The leading candidate is, in fact, well-known for playing a president, running for president himself. So Sounds like he has experience to me. Right? Well, I'm only thinking of all the actors who have played U.S. presidents and their qualifications to run for, for 2020. We will find out. No, I'd vote for Alec Baldwin. Um, ooh, Alec Baldwin, that one's... <laughs> Oh, that'd be great. Um, anyways, that's it for this week. We will catch you guys soon. Thanks for listening.